A crappy childhood does not have to be a life sentence to a crappy life. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, I'm Andrea. I'm a former shit show. I am sometimes still a shit show and proud of it. And if you're a shit show, you're going to fit in perfectly around here. Today, we are diving deep with Anna Runkle. She is the face behind the amazing YouTube channel crappy childhood fairy, which is focused on complex PTSD. So Anna is going to share with us about her crappy childhood, how this manifested in adulthood, her realization that she was suffering from complex PTSD, and about a recovery tool that she has developed to deal with emotional dysregulation. Now, we have touched upon emotional dysregulation throughout the pod, This is one of the hallmark symptoms of complex PTSD. This is one of the hallmark symptoms of the adult child trauma syndrome. So this is what Tian is talking about when she says that ACAs go from 0 to 10 and 10 to 0 with no speed bumps in between. So basically emotional dysregulation is emotional overreaction, a person's inability to control or regulate their emotional reactions to provocative stimuli, i.e. when a guy doesn't text you back after 20 minutes. So there are many causes of emotional dysregulation, but the primary cause is childhood trauma and neglect. Lucky us. And so for an adult child, when we are experiencing emotional dysregulation, there's a few things going on here. So first we have this unresolved trauma that gets triggered. Part of our reaction may indeed be about the present circumstance. However, the overreaction probably is not. The overreaction is most likely attributed to the past. And then the other thing that's going on for us is that as kids... We did not learn the tools to cope with emotions in a healthy way. So in the show notes, I will include a link to an article. It's from Psych Central, but I just want to read a portion of it that talks about what the hell is going on for people who learned how to deal with their emotions or grew up in a functional family versus what the hell is going on for us. So it's talking about people who learned how to deal with their emotions growing up. So it says, first, they have the conceptual apparatus to understand what it is they are feeling, which in itself gives them a degree of grounding and security. Conversely, people suffering from affect dysregulation, so that's another term for emotional dysregulation is affect dysregulation. Conversely, people suffering from affect dysregulation typically do not experience these strong emotions as fear, anger, or the like, but rather experience an overwhelming and unbearable sense of raw pain. Who the hell can relate to that? It goes on to say, secondly, most people usually have some sense of why they feel the way that they do and what prompted it. 
which gives them the ability to orient their emotions towards a target and formulate an action in response. Conversely, victims of complex trauma often do not understand why they feel this way and cannot trace their feelings to a specific cause with which they can engage. Finally, emotional awareness allows people to challenge their own emotions consciously regulate them, and choose whether or not to take action in accord, all of which is impossible for those who have not learned the toolbox of emotional regulation. And the final thing it says, of course, all of us from time to time experience emotions that we can control and act in a way that appears wrong in the light of later reflection. But For those whose emotional learning process was stunted and warped by complex trauma, affect dysregulation is a constant burden and all of life becomes an elaborate coping mechanism to compensate. Ugh, yeah. (laughs) So what the hell do we do about it? Well, number one, we need to address our trauma. We need to treat our unresolved trauma. And two... We have to learn how to emotionally regulate. We have to learn tools to deal with strong emotions in a healthy way. And crappy childhood fairy is going to tell us about her tool to do so. But first, I just want to give a shout out to the newest Patreon members. I thought for sure that I listed them again last week, but I went back and listened to the episode and it doesn't sound like it. So shout out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Marina. Jessica, Leslie, Michelle, Dez, Anna B, Stacy, Carrie, Nick, Zara. I really feel like I said these names. Emily, Wendy, uh, Heather, Patty, Mountain Moon Intuitive, Valerie, and Andrea. I really hope that you pronounce your name Andrea or I'm going to kick you out of the group. Just kidding. So I just want to say that this past Sunday... Uh, We had our first group going through chapter one of Tian's uh, adult child workbook. Uh, There's another group that's starting this Thursday. So you have time to make it in. And I will start as many other groups as needed. So for anyone who's interested, I highly, highly, highly encourage that you join the Patreon. We heal together, not alone. Uh... So yeah, and of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to all the people who have. Let's keep it going. And now for the crappy childhood fairy. It is my pleasure to introduce Anna Runkle. She is the creator of the amazing YouTube channel, Crappy Childhood Fairy. She also has tons of online courses and tons of material to help all us suffering adult children. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time. So welcome, Anna. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to tell you that you are the first guest that I've had that is a um, a magical being. <laughs> you mean the fairy? <laughs> yeah, you're my first um, yeah, spiritual magical being that we've had on the pod. So how does that make you feel? What an honor. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Isn't that a goofy name? I just love the name though. When I first started this, I had some very serious name like you, your healing year. And then I just realized like, <laughs> I'm just sick to death of getting all gloomy about this. It's got to be kind of fun and interesting to persist yes. with it. So it, it, I ended up with the name crappy childhood fairy, which I feel like is self-explanatory. <laughs> That is the underlying theme of, of this podcast is, is learning how to laugh at this shit, at this crap, right? <laughs> so glad you're doing the same. Um, and I love, a, I, love a, I love a curse word in a title anyways. So Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, love it. <laughs> people are bothered. It's kind of funny, but uh, uh, there's a whole subset. Like the, uh, There's some people in India who are very formal and they write to me and, they, and I'm not sure they know what crappy means in our vernacular. I'm not sure because they call me... Dear Mrs. Crappy. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> you should. I am That's Mrs. Crappy. Mrs. Crappy. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I tend to say the, the F word. I'll just say fuck quite a bit. Um, I've gotten two messages from people saying not a fan, but let's just be honest. I've had about a hundred messages saying that they love it. So, oh, I'm like, well, on you and I will just fit it. right in. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm on YouTube. I have to be somewhat careful to be monetized, but this is true. This is true. Yeah. Um, so what I thought we could do, cause there's quite a bit that I want to talk with you about, but I want to start with you. So kind of in, uh, as they say, when people share in, in 12 step meetings, I want to talk about what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. So tell mm. me about your childhood. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in an alcoholic family in Berkeley. I was born in the sixties. My mom got really into the hippie thing and my dad did not. Had they moved out here for that or were they already living here? No, they, they were already living here. They, neither of them were born in the Bay area, but they, they came here for college. Okay. And um, they were fabulous, intelligent, worldly people, but they had alcoholism real bad, especially my mom. And we had all the problems that tend to go with alcoholism. There was, you know, she, she was really flaky. She, when I was a month old, she took off for a month with some man, you know, and then she'd come back and they were sort of breaking up, getting together, breaking up, getting together, lots of drama, violence, later money problems. They started out like, I don't know, I think we were pretty middle class, but we came down, down, down the ladder. And they got divorced when I was seven and my mom remarried. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I had, my mom had four kids from three different marriages and I was from the second dad. So, uh, and alcoholism hit my siblings real hard too, out of the four of us to have serious alcoholism. One died mm. from it. Yeah. So I was more of like the good kid, the one who tried to put on a happy face and have it all together. And I also had a couple of advantages of neighbors, you know, kids in the neighborhood whose moms saw what was going on. And it's, I've maintained relationships with those, some of those families. And what's cool is to hear now what people could see from the outside. And in those days, you know, people would see something was wrong, but you didn't like call the authorities back then. Yeah. And maybe that was for the best. I wouldn't have wanted it. I, I went out of my way as a child to hide how bad things were. I also had these incredible teachers in my elementary school who really um, validated me, helped me know my worth, um, promised, you know, promised me that I was intelligent and was going to be okay. And let me bring my sister who was three years younger, like a toddler to school with me every day. And she had hot lunch with us and just the whole thing. 
So the informalness of the way society was structured back then really helped me. So and you I, were bringing her to school to protect her? Well, she had, there was nobody to take care of her, mm-hmm. you know? So like my mom would just take off. So yeah, to just, I didn't know what else to do. Just take her with me. And so things got a little more stable in my family when my mom remarried. She remarried a guy who, who was not an alcoholic and we moved to Arizona. And that was kind of a different chapter in how the whole thing played out. My older brother ended up an alcoholic and heroin addict and more in my recovery. I've been really coming to terms with, he was a major source of trauma for me. He used to torture me and threaten me and bully me. And, um, he's older, just, yeah, seven years older, much bigger. And definitely like, I was afraid of him all the time. I slept with a knife under my bed, you know, Mm. to keep him off. And my parents were, they just weren't that involved that I, it didn't occur to me to even go to them about this stuff. So Mm. you think that that's normal or, or maybe you don't know it's normal, but you don't know any different. Yeah. You weren't taught to talk about things. No, no. And, um, but it, you know, I was lucky again, we lived in this very cool neighborhood where there were really interesting, good parents in our midst. I was a babysitter. I was always very entrepreneurial. I started babysitting at nine wow. and then I started a yard work business and a jewelry business and I delivered papers and I sold flowers and we were very, very poor. So if I wanted to have like have free lunch that wasn't the free lunch, which back then was too stigmatizing for my mind back then. Uh, So I would go get junk food with the other kids on money that I earned when I had to buy my own clothes and things. So I'm sort of like, I'm trying to paint the picture here. Like we had these incredible neighbors. I became entrepreneurial. There were ways that I coped with this that have served me all my life and helped me to be resilient. But I would just say that the, the childhood trauma, I wasn't totally in touch with it at first, but it really started to show up as a big difference between me and everybody else in my late 20s. Um, up until that point, like I was, I was creative, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just when I started having relationships and they started not working out, that's where I can't relate. <laughs> yeah. It's this funny thing. It's just me, right? Yeah. Yeah. And- <laughs> But it was really taking me down and it was so out of whack, like other things I was so good at in my life, like having a job or going to college, but having relationships, I was really bad at. Both. Was it mostly romantic or friendships as well? Um, Mostly the romantic relationships. Yes. Broken picker syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what kind of brought me to recovery in the first place. And so do you, do you remember... Um, as a child, were you aware that alcohol was the problem? Do you, when do you remember learning about alcoholism or what is kind of your first memory as it relates to, to drinking in your family? That's such a good question. I was 12 when it finally dawned on me. That's what it was. Like I knew there was something wrong. Our house was really messy. We had a lot of broken windows, you know, there were dead cars in the front yard, but I thought it was more like, because we were poor. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 12, I remember I was just, it dawned on me. I'm like, this is, this is that thing called alcoholism, isn't it? And there wasn't, you know, there certainly was AA back then, but uh, I remember once uh, I came in contact with some kind of a school count. It wasn't a school counselor. Uh, I think it was in a drama class or something. And somebody said, you know, there's this thing called Alateine. And I was just like, no fucking way. That just sounds so churchy and bizarre. And I would never do that. So it was there and it was offered to me, but I just didn't, I wasn't ready. (laughs) So my experience was, um, so when I was seven, 
we were out to dinner. I'm an only child. So I was with my parents. And so, uh, we're waiting for my dad to arrive and my mom had ordered a beer and she was barely drinking it. I could tell that she was upset. And then when my dad came, you know, I saw a tear roll down her face at some point in the dinner, she took me to the bathroom. And I remember I asked her what was wrong. And she told me that she was an alcoholic. And of course I'm seven and I don't know what that means. So I say, what does that mean? And she says, that means I can't drink. And it was like, even though I had no idea what that really meant, I a hundred percent knew what it meant, you know? And it was like, from that day on, I knew when my mom was going to drink or when she would drink even sometimes hours before she would even pick up a drink. You know, I developed that, that sixth sense, but I just wonder what the difference is in impact as far as, and my dad would talk to me about it. Like I was, you know, I was parentified in, in that sense. It, it, for you, it sounds like you were very much parentified um, from like an actual like duty perspective of taking care of your siblings in the house. For me, it was more, more so emotional, but yeah, I just think about what the difference is in impact when, I mean, for me, obviously I didn't a hundred percent know what was going on, but I, but I was kind of told versus you kind of having to piece together it for yourself, you know? That's remarkable that she told you. I, it is like wrong, but, but still in a way, having that honest information at least was there. I mean, to this day, my family, does, my mom's been dead for 30 years or something, but, but still it's very uncomfortable for my family to talk about it. They, they've always considered me like the weirdo black sheep who does all that California woo-woo stuff, like 12-step, you know? <laughs> And, and crappy childhood fairy, we just don't discuss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would imply that I was traumatized. <laughs> yeah. And so then did you experiment with drugs and alcohol at all when you were a teenager or you were oh, just- Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I did. And um, it was so normal back then. But it's funny because I thought it was more normal than it was. Yeah. I, thought, I thought, oh, everybody does it. And so sure, I experimented with everything and I got lucky that I gave a chance, like- Drugs and alcohol absolutely could have seized my life, but I, I suspect it's just genetic. There was something in me that just didn't click with it, didn't get stuck there, and it became unpleasant, and I didn't want to do it anymore. That's amazing. But I think what a lot of what drew me in is I was always drawn to the boys who did it, mm-hmm. and so I would do drugs and alcohol to be with them, and mm-hmm. that's kind of more my gateway drug. Yeah. Than- so what was your, what was your pattern as far as relationships or what was the type that you were attracted to? What was, you know, we typically find ourselves in relationships with the same type of person over and over. So what was your type? Well, I guess I can say with pride that it hasn't always been exactly the same type. You know, I have had the, I've had the pleasure of having relationships with some really wonderful men. Wow. <laughs> but sometimes I, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, sometimes uh, I I ended up with serious blind spots around their addictions. So I'll just lay it out there. Twice I have ended up, one time I got together with a guy who was four years clean and sober. And this was right after my brother died of heroin and alcohol when I was about 30. And about a, within a week of that happening, I met this guy and I was like four years clean and sober. And it was my first year in Al-Anon. I was already in Al-Anon, you know, before my brother died. Um, but I met him and I was like four years clean and sober. This is like the most (laughs) knight in shining armor thing that's ever happened to me. And I felt really optimistic and confident about getting into a relationship with him, but just stuff got shaky for him a couple years in and he ended up relapsing and overdosing Mm. and it was absolutely devastating and dying. He died. Yeah, he died. 
while you were still together? Yeah, we were tenuously together because he was using and I was having a hard time handling that. I was doing all those sort of classic Al-Anon moves of like, can't we negotiate this? What if I make rules? You know, I just didn't want to lose him. Uh, And when it's happening, it's just so hard to believe like, this is really happening. Is it going to stop? Of course it's going to stop. I know you, you're great. You know? So, so it, to be honest, it wasn't like this. It wasn't the best relationship ever, you know, but it's the one I was in. I'm I'm surprised to hear that. I I was going to ask for his number if he's still alive. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, yeah, no, he's yeah, no. (laughs) And so uh, I, my first marriage was with a guy who was long-term sober and clean. And he is the father of my kids. We're divorced now and he's still clean and sober and he's my friend, but we had a rough go of it. And, um, I had a relationship after that with a guy who I had no idea had a drug problem and he was smoking Mm -hmm. heroin. And that was, you know, this was, this was, I was already like in my early forties by then I was a single mom. And I found out that the guy that I was dating was smoking heroin every day. And that was, how did you find out? He told me one day, (laughs) he told me, he goes, I just have to tell you something. It hadn't been that long. It had been, I don't know who, who even knows anymore. I've like digested this so much, a couple of months, a few months or something. And in a weird way, we had a great relationship. You know, it was very calm. (laughs) (laughs) Fucked up all the time. (laughs) He was so tolerant, you know, not stressful. Um, But it was a really hard time in my life. I've had a few times when at this time, you know, with divorce and, and um, the little kids, and I had this medical thing going on that was just bad luck, but I was in and out of the hospital and that's how he was a neighbor. I had like gotten to know him and because he was helping me deal with my kids and everything. So he was just such a nice guy, but then it turns out he had this terrible problem and it was a problem that I knew my brother had already died of it. I had had a boyfriend many years before die of it. I did not want this in my life, but given my upbringing and heroin was a big thing in my family too. And I just think in the way that alcoholism kind of like gets into your amniotic fluid, you know, it's like, the, the consciousness of heroin, it's, it, even though it was never my consciousness directly, there was just this weird familiarity or something with it mm-hmm. for me. I can't explain it, but something just, I just went really unconscious around it and I was clueless and I didn't know what was going on and I didn't know what to do. And we fought for a while and guess what? He died. While you were together. Yeah. Tenuously together because I was like flailing around trying to like set a boundary or say, you mm-hmm. have to get treatment or, you know, and right before he he, he took his own life and he did it because I broke up with him. So how many years in between the prior boyfriend overdosing? Oh, this is so embarrassing. Let's see. 94, <laughs> 2006, 12 years, something like that. Okay. Okay. I thought you were going to say two years. Oh, that would be bad. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It happened again. Like I had had like successful experiences between, but it happened again. And when it happens again, then you have to, you know, you have to concede to your innermost self something when that happens. And so that's why it was a turning point for me. It was a turning point where I was like, wow, my will, you know, I don't want it anymore. I don't want it anymore. This like grasping at, at relationships and like trying so hard. And I, it, it's, it's hard to be a single mom. And it's hard when you're me not to just be like, oh, gotta, 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 you know, you know got to find a man. But I got over it. And I, I just got this incredible uh, uh, mentor who helped me. And got very serious about my spiritual life in a way that I never had. And eventually I met the man I'm now married to. 
and, you know, basically just cleared it. I just stopped doing that shit. I just stopped and I set some new criteria for myself. And one of the criteria was I cannot date anyone who doesn't want to get married, who has now or has ever had a drug or alcohol problem. I mean, I love, I have many sober alkies in my circle of friends, but I can't date them. And I knew that. So I have an incredible husband now. We've How been long together. have you been married? We've been married for almost eight years. Wow. Well, here's the deal though. You're talking about, you know, setting criteria. I mean, I set criteria all day long. That didn't mean that I followed it. Uh, I think what really changed was that you did the inner work and what you were attracted to and who was attracted to you changed. Yeah. You know, it's, well, usually I can't have a conversation this specific and deep about this, but you know how it is, no matter you, you work, I'm sure you worked for years, you know, sometimes you do the work and you still can't change. Like Mm -hmm. it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And I just think sometimes the grace of your higher power comes in. For me, there's been a few chapters and often it's in those most painful incidents, you know, that in phases kept bringing me to my knees mm-hmm. going, all right, I got to cut this out. Yeah. And I really got to the point, you know, when that second guy died, I really got to the point where I did not want my will. I wanted God's will, even if it was to be alone. And that used to be unthinkable to me. Growing up so neglected, like it was unthinkable to make a decision that I was going to let go of that and to let go of that, just that driving drive, you know, of like, um, I must have this. I'm not going to be okay without this. I'm not going to be okay. And that's, it's not, that's not totally sick. It's like many of us are called to be married and, um, yeah. and have children. And that is what I always wanted, but I couldn't put it together. I know. So what about um, the blame and the guilt? I mean, did you grieving that i mean was there a period where you you blamed yourself for both of their deaths no i didn't blame myself at all um it definitely wasn't my fault and that's one of the nice things that's amazing about that having already been in al-anon for these things yeah. i knew yeah. like i really did everything i could in those relationships and it's it's easy enough to think to yourself well i wish it hadn't i hadn't gotten so like freaked out about it but mm-hmm. you know if you've ever watched somebody self destruct like there's nothing you can do it's, it's very difficult, but honestly, it, it, for, in both cases, at, when it got to the point where they died, I was devastated, but there was a certain like sigh of relief that I no longer had to try to figure out what to do. You know, it's just, it's a terrible situation. And I just knew I never wanted to be in that situation again. People really judge you though. In both cases, like people in their lives blamed me. Mm-hmm. And so it always involved, always, I talk about it. I've done it. I've been through this twice, but in, in, in both cases, it meant completely moving on from the circle of people I had hung out with, you know, there's just like no carryover whatsoever. And that's part of what's hard about it, but it's just as well, because, you know, if there's some part of you that has created and accepted that kind of a relationship, it's kind of like drinking or drugs, like, you, you know, if you really, if you really make a decision to turn your will and your life over, you're going to leave it behind. You're going to leave, you're going to be willing to leave it all behind. And that's all fine. It's all okay. And something good can come into your life. Mm-hmm. So I think our, our experiences are, are similar in the sense that, so for me, I, I hit like my adult child bottom when I had nine years sober. And so basically what my experience was, was like, I kept you know, finding myself in these toxic romantic relationships, not only were the guys not improving, but my state of being, my reactions, the way I handled it when they would end, continued to just get 
worse and worse and worse. And I couldn't figure out what the fuck was going on with me and having the realization that I was having a trauma response was the most significant and mind blowing aha moment that I had ever had. And so I was hoping that you could share about your aha moment when you came to terms with the fact that you were suffering from um, complex PTSD. Yeah. So I I got shown the 12 steps by this incredible woman who was sober in AA. I'm not an alcoholic. She is. She showed me back in the day. And when she showed me, she showed me how to like write my fears and resentments twice a day and meditate. And at the time I, I, you know, previous, I I used to be too, like, I don't know, uh, proud or something to be shown anything really. I would go to therapy, (laughs) but I'd control the process or I don't know, but I was so desperate one night and she showed me how to do this. And she had such a such a beautiful light and joy about her. I just wanted what she had. And she showed me and it was just this weird part of my story. So then I had to go on and find a, a 12 step fellowship where I belonged because I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and I, I got to go to a lot of open meetings, but, but the thing was, you know, she'd always go, well, you're, you're not an alcoholic, you're an Al-Anon. And I go, but it's weird. Cause I go to Al-Anon and as wonderful as it is, I'm a bull in a China shop there. Mm-hmm. I don't <laughs> fit in. I'm too much for people there, you know, Mm. occasionally somebody relates, but there was, there was a way that I was like profoundly recovering and expanding as a human, but couldn't really connect with people there. And um, there just was no such thing as complex PTSD back then. They didn't know it was a thing. In fact, the whole reason I got into recovery, I, I had this very bad cluster of things that happened back in 94. That's how I ended up in is feeling so bad. I needed to work the steps, but my mom died. I got assaulted on the street. Mm-hmm. A guy dumped me. I got so fucked up about the whole thing that I, um, my PTSD reactivated. So I kind of functioned okay up until that point, but it just like the cat got out of the bag and I could yep. not put it back in. I couldn't read. I couldn't use a phone. I was just like freaked out all the time. And I was worried I wasn't going to make it. And I was afraid to tell anybody, like, I didn't feel like anybody could understand. And so this woman, this alcoholic woman, she understood. She's like, come in, have a cup of tea, get out some paper and pen. I, I can help you with this. Well, so I, I got profoundly better. I had a massive spiritual awakening when that happened. I lost the desire to die. I got excited about life. I still had a lot of things that I hadn't worked out yet. Yep. You know, I had, it took, it, it, it took more experience and more time in the steps and, and carrying on with that. And I sponsored hundreds of women and helped, but I, I mean, hopefully we're all like ongoing, we're all continuing to heal and recover. Right. So I don't even know what lies ahead of me, but I got through <laughs> one, I got through one big crucial hump, you know, of healing. Then I hit the problems again and then tragedy would strike. And then I'd go through a big clump of healing. I just had so far to go, mm-hmm. but nobody knew what CPTSD was. So a couple things happened. Um, when this guy killed himself, he made it. So I found him. I don't really want to go into it. It's too triggering and yucky for anybody to listen to, but I, you know, I did CPR. I tried to save him. I had CPT. I had PTSD so bad after that that. And I was going to a therapist and I was going to the doctor and I wasn't getting better. It was like a year and a half. And I was still like reliving the whole thing again and again. And it's just weird to me. It wasn't that long ago, but they did not know what to do except keep asking me to talk about it. So one of the key milestones in my healing was to realize that when I talk about my trauma, I basically just get so dysregulated. I can't think. 
And I've never, ever made progress by talking about stuff. I think it's important to tell your story. But the thing that really helped me was that my friend showed me how to write my fears and resentments and read them to her. And then I could communicate what it was and get her experience, strength and hope about it. Right. But talking about it in a therapist's office, I was beginning to feel like I was this terrible freak. It just wasn't going anywhere. And the doctor and the therapist were like, well, how many times are you having these flashbacks where you keep reliving what happened? I'm like, oh, not that much, you know, like 20 times a day or something. And like, ah, we have to put you on serious drugs because this is so bad for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I had this thought, like, I'll get online. By then we had the internet, you know, this is like 2006 or something. And um, by then I, the, I, I did some research, like, what do you do when you have this? I began to suspect this is PTSD. And I learned like, get some hard exercise, you know, drink water, don't eat sugar, don't have wine, don't, you know, just, so I started doing these things and I got like a lot better, not all the way better. Then a really cool thing happened. My meditation teacher, who's a friend of mine, and I had a birthday party for him. And one of his friends was there and we were chatting by then it's 2008. Eight and like nobody has any money, including me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm, I'm like this single mom with no work. And he's, I ended up talking to him about trauma. He was the, he did, he, he, he's a therapist who treats veterans, homeless people, and addicts in the streets of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And um, that's like my kind of person. I felt very safe with him. <laughs> and I told him what it had been going on in my life. And he said, you know, I, I do EMDR. I'd heard of this. And he offered to do EMDR for me for five sessions for free, mm. which is just incredible. And sometimes I tell people this and I just want to say, no, he was very safe. It was in no way, it was a simple and pure gift. And it was one of the best gifts anybody ever gave me. And I went in and dealt with my adult traumas, five of them. And one of them was like finding that guy. That was the one that was really hard at the time. That memory, that whole re-triggering event turned into a memory in one session, mm. one session. I just couldn't even believe it. And so then I did some other things, you know, some medical trauma and some other things that had happened, um, getting a- attacked on the street and just like, boom, 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 five adult traumas gone. So then I, 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 I said, okay, I have some money again. I'd like to do some more and try childhood stuff. I didn't have any luck with childhood stuff for EMDR. Yeah. But that's, I think that's supported by data. It's most effective for adult traumas. So then I started to know what this was and I learned a little bit from him and from some various sources. Now ACEs science was coming out, adverse childhood experiences. And in my work, I ended up working on a project where I was very quietly learning about that. Not like, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. coming out about it. And then um, it became necessary as I was dating and then engaged, you know, with my husband, we were together for five years before we got married, but right before we were to get married, I had a huge CPTSD like outburst, you know, where I just kind of like flipped out and said really hurtful things. And he said, you know what? I need you to figure this out before we get married. And truer words were never said. It was it uh, caused me to go look online and find out what can I do. And I found the books, the body keeps the score mm-hmm. and Pete Walker's CPTSD from surviving to thriving. Mm-hmm. And I read those and I was like, Oh my God, there's a name for what I have. And I fit it exactly. Like, you know, when you have it and you read what it is, you're just like, that's what I have. <laughs> and it was this beautiful, liberating thing to find out like there's a, it's a thing. It's not just me. It's not just, I, I can't tell you how many times people are, were like, 
Um, I'd be like, I don't know. I've been choosing self-destructive relationships and they'd go, well, you must just be trying to recreate your childhood. And I would think, I don't think so. You know, I, I think that I am trying to have something better than that. I don't know why I do this. And so reading those books and, and actually, you know, they're, the consciousness, it's not, those books are not everything. And now I make a lot of stuff about what it's like, but it's, I just don't, I think a lot of stuff has been psychologized by normies, mm-hmm. you know, it, sure. It looks like that. Or when women um, put on 200 pounds who have been sexually abused and they say, oh, they're just trying to avoid sex. Well, maybe some of them. But, you know, there's also a lot of endocrine disruption with trauma mm-hmm. and sexual abuse. It messes up the relationship of insulin and leptin. And so that will do it, too. <laughs> and so there's just a lot of stuff that is so liberating where you go, oh, they were wrong. They psychologized all of this. Um, in some cases, it might be surely a neurological phenomenon. And that's so I zeroed in on part of complex PTSD that really spoke to me. And it's dysregulation. And it's a measurable thing that goes on in your brain and nervous system. And for people who were abused or neglected as kids, you can see this. They, they have an intense reaction to stressful thoughts as adults that causes reasoning in the left front cortex to quiet down mm-hmm. and emotions in the right front cortex to get bigger. So mm-hmm. reasoning is down, emotions are up, and that pretty much describes what happens under stress when you have CPTSD. <laughs> but then it leaves you discombobulated and hard to focus. And, you know, we got called ADHD or borderline, you know, there's all these like diagnoses that people get that are sometimes possibly just complex PTSD. I don't know. I never get into diagnosis. I don't worry about it. I, I focus on symptoms. And if I'm dysregulated, there's not a lot I can do to solve my problems. So I realized that the writing and meditation that I had learned from my friend that hard night in 1994 was a re-regulating tool. And that when I used it, I got better. Hmm. But the second part of my trauma was that I had learned some very dysregulated habits about like having relationships. So here's the thing about getting into sick relationships where you don't see it coming. If a situation is stressful, which meeting a guy that you like is, your reasoning goes down, (laughs) your Mm -hmm. emotions go up. And so you'll find yourself again and again, marching off a cliff into ignoring red flags. We go colorblind. (laughs) Yeah. It's your, but it's your brain. It's not because you're willfully stupid or anything like that. Your, your brain literally will shut down your reasoning at these moments. And if you end up sleeping with somebody during such an unconscious, Mm -hmm. you know, semi-conscious, it's not like you're not out, you know, you appear conscious, but your whole brain is not working for you. Then you're bonded. And if you have a bunch of abandonment trauma, then you're stuck. Now you have to stay with them until they, you know, <laughs> been die. There, been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or until they like dump you after three weeks and then you act like you're, you know, that the world's over. Yeah. I've been there. That's abandonment <laughs> melange. That's a thing. You know? <laughs> I know. Been I there. love that. There's a word for that too. And I'm like, I have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your world That's is over. Heck. Yeah. I don't know, for me, having a name for these things and knowing they're a thing and they're normal, they're normal for people who went through abnormal upbringings, um, it was like half the pressure off. A hundred percent. It released so much shame from me. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think that some people would maybe even feel like, oh, like learning that you have this is shameful. And it's like, no, because for years, I just thought I was like inherently flawed and unfixable and having mm-hmm. this realization and knowing what the deal was, that's when like change, recovery, healing became a possibility for me. Yes, that's right. And, and, and everything that goes on, there's so many ways that people approach healing from trauma, but basically none of them were useful to me until I could learn to re-regulate. 
and start to keep that as like foundational to anything I was trying to do. So I no longer try to go in and talk about stuff just like that. Just like, okay, I'm going to, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this by talking about it. Like I no longer expect that. And I'm really tuned into the way I start, I start dysregulating sometimes in certain situations, my nose goes numb. I begin to notice that, or my hands start getting clumsy. And then I, that's a sign for me. I'm like, Oh, I'm dysregulating. And if I'm trying to have an important conversation or make a big decision about something and my nose is going numb, I just know like, stop, I need to hold on. You know, I need to re-regulate even if it takes a day or an hour or five minutes. And um, it saves, it saves a world of trouble in terms of like conflict with my husband. Like if Mm -hmm. I'm starting to feel signs of dysregulation, I have to treat that. It's like trying to talk to somebody drunk, like don't do it, you know, (laughs) don't do it. If you're dysregulated, then, you know, with reasoning off, then you become unreasonable and then that hurts the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it becomes possible to suddenly there is a level playing field that's possible to enter and begin practicing on. And it takes practice, but you can go there now because you can regulate emotions and nervous system high level. Do you want to talk about this, the writing exercise that you do, or do you want me to just sure. direct people to your, your page or yeah, I mean, I'll give you, you, I'll give you a link. A yeah. I have a free course and um, called the daily practice. And it's the very techniques that I was shown by this woman that I've been using. And, um, but I've really crafted this course to suit people with, with complex PTSD. And it's a very specific writing technique a lot of people will go, oh, I, I've been doing your journaling technique and I always get feisty and I go, it's not a journal. A journal <laughs> is where we commemorate and remember and analyze things that happen so that we can read it again someday. This is where we take out the trash of our minds. So it's all the disturbing thoughts. We just lump it into two simple categories. It's fear or it's resentment and we get it on paper. And then I would just, I, I write a little prayer asking for it to be removed at the end. And for people who um, prefer to work with just their higher self. They don't want to use a higher power. Then, you know, I've suggested a format. And so I have a little PDF. It's like, you could say this, I I hereby release, but the goal is to not have this stuff. What I love about having a higher power and really authentically having that experience and that power in my life is I can trust that if I let, if I let go all my concerns and then I sit down and meditation for 20 minutes and just kick back and rest my mind. I don't have to breathe a certain way or sit a certain way. feels really just restful or I'm very fidgety. I'm a fidgety meditator, but it doesn't matter. What happens is my mind is refreshed. And sometimes that's just like a nap or feels mm-hmm. like a nap. And sometimes, sometimes I get a lot clearer about something that seemed overwhelmingly hard or confusing. Mm-hmm. And some problems, they just like, I forget, I forget what I was even worried about. You know, does so-and-so not like me? For, I forget, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that's like, that's really nice. Or sometimes I get clear, like, you know what? I've really got to do something about some problem that's happening. You know, my kid's struggling in math or something, and I, I'm going to have to step up for that. I think I've not done enough about that. So my, it sort of gets put into order and then given back to me when I come out of meditation. And I'm telling you, when you, like, I started doing it just to save my own life, just to get through terrible nights. And it helped me with that. But over time, it also became how I developed my intuition and my intelligence and my clarity and doing what I do now. um, uh, You know, I've started a few businesses since I've been doing all of this, but now the business of crappy childhood fairy has completely become my career. Mm -hmm. And what's kind of cool about it is that it's it's a business that's run 
off of my conscious contact, you know, <laughs> every day I'm just kind of like, what am I, what shall I do? And I, you know, we, many of us have discovered that the meaning like real happiness and meaning comes from living our lives in a way that benefits all that's mm -hmm. like, that's a very happy thing. And I have the pleasure of doing that now as best I can, but you know, more than anything I've ever done, I get to have that contact with people who are working on healing. And one thing I hear over and over again in comments and in letters I get is um, no one ever, I've never heard my condition described by anybody ever before. Like I describe my experience and other people relate. Yep. Yep. And so every time somebody says that, like I get that relatedness too, where I was just the weirdo and the bull in the China mm -hmm. shop everywhere I went. And, and there's something about like serving others that like accelerates your, your growth. It's so wonderful. So I want to talk about one of my favorite videos of yours. And I think that this is very, um, relevant to all of my listeners. And that is the three behaviors that push people away with, mm. uh, with complex PTSD. And so the first one is this, you talk about like how our loneliness gets leaky. And this is something uh -huh. that I've actually been talking about a little bit. So, you know, my, my issue in the past, uh, in dating is I'm a bit of an overshare, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I couldn't understand why this was freaking people out, but yeah. Can you, can you talk some about, uh, when our, when our loneliness gets leaky, Lone leaky loneliness? Yeah. Sounds well, so sexy, huh? <laughs> Ew. Ew. <laughs> Got it. Well, yeah, it's, there's a lot, I mean, the, one of the core signs of complex PTSD is loneliness. And it's a, it's a lonely condition. It's a, you know, it's a disease of loneliness. And so is alcoholism for that matter. And their loneliness is just part of it. And that's what it does. It alienates us and makes us feel different. And in some ways we are different, but, but there's a lot of behavior that goes with it. And I think it comes back to, we get very triggered by people. I can think I can speak for all of us that people are triggering. And one of the ways that we can deal with that is to, hold ourselves separate from them, to avoid them, to be either overtly separate or secretly separate where you pretend you're at the party, but you're not really sharing yourself with anybody. Or I have a video called covert avoidance. That was very popular. A lot of people understood. And a friend of mine had described something that totally encapsulated it. She go, I would go to parties, but pretend that I was the photographer <laughs> come with a camera around her neck. And that way she could sort of talk to people and then go, okay, got to go take some pictures. But she wasn't really the photographer or she'd walk so around with a, with a clipboard. <laughs> you know, I was like, I so get that. Like I need something in front of me with other people. It's just too, it's too much. And, and it's really triggering. So now because I, you know, because I write and meditate all the time, if I get stressed out at a party, I'm off in the bathroom. I've got paper and pen with me always. You know, I fear nobody here likes me, fear I don't fit in, fear they're all rich people and fear they're normal. And, you know, you know whatever's whatever got me weirded out, fear I'm going to end up eating all the cookies. And that's not appropriate. You know, <laughs> whatever it is. But yeah, it could um, be a lot. It could be worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so that loneliness, it's like, it, it, it's alienating having this thing. And, but, part of it is real. And part of it is like in our minds that people are just too much and we, and, and we can't deal with them. And there's a lot of healing that happens that makes it possible to be closer to people. But I don't know, you know, I think that's probably one of the lingering things for me. And a lot of people is um, I, I sort of put on a fake face sometimes for social situations. I have, safe I have the opposite. 
I, I'm like, you just I'm tell just, them everything. I, yes. I'm too much of my authentic self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that recovery means like really being who you are. It's recovery it means is. having a little bit of, a little bit of steering wheel on that, you know, a little bit of gas pedal to know how fast or slow, but to exactly. really like, well, the, the woman who showed me how to recover so long ago, once I, I was telling her, I go, you know, fear I was inappropriate. She said, we don't work these steps to be appropriate. We work these steps to be ourselves. <laughs> she was always like a super advocate of like becoming yourself. And that I, in turn, am, am an advocate that we heal from CPTSD, not just to not be depressed or to be able to keep a job or a relationship, oh, but we to live as to our become, authentic selves, to become our real selves. And yep. if yourself has a lot of like feelings and stories and, you know, what could be better than for you to be a podcaster? Mm-hmm. There's a place for that. There's a, you know, there's a place for you in this world. Yeah. Just not on a first date. I'll just do it. I just need to do it. I on know. A not on a first date. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you about my sexual no. abuse? Yeah, exactly. Very, you know, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm feeling it right now. It's kind of weird. Yeah. I've just spent three years, um, you know, healing. This is my first date back. I, I, I tend to pick emotionally unavailable alcoholics and yeah. want to kill myself after three weeks. So hopefully yeah. I'm not going to yeah. do that this time, dude. I know. Are you interested? Don't you want to have sex with me now? <laughs> 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 I know. Yeah, yeah. I found yeah, out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. How about you? <laughs> yep. <sighs> yep. Yeah. No, I, it was interesting. There was um somebody that I had on the podcast. She had posted something the other day about how oversharing just comes from this deep kneel to feel connection, especially when for most of our lives we felt so dismissed or invalidated. Yeah. Yeah. I do understand as few others can. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what can you be but yourself? And I think that as we heal, we become less identified with this, with what happened in the past and we mm-hmm. start to have a new story and there's a little bit more to say about that. And so that buffers <laughs> yeah. people. And so we have a little bit more of a, of latitude to um, be selective about which part of ourselves we're going to share. But I still feel like, well, I don't know. I'm just so glad to have a CPTSD community. I'm doing this. Um, I, I, I'm following this food program called um, bright line eating that is um, really brilliant. And by this was created by this woman who was originally a 12 step person, Susan Pierce Thompson. And we I've created a little group within my crappy childhood fairy community of people who are following this food plan. It's like no flour, no sugar, you know, bounded quantities, meal times, no snacks, very sensible, very flexible. I'm all <laughs> but, about carbs, baby. Gotta have carbs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So we we're doing this together and I just love this group so much as I, and normally like groups are always a little touchy with me, but if everybody has CBTSD and everybody's a little wonky around carbs, I fit right in. I'm like, okay, I'm safe. And the way that they get kind of like weird or have bad days, it's like, I understand I'm not alienated by it. I'm not judging it. And th- that's not always true. You know, the, when the way the, some people get bothered by things that I don't understand, I just, I feel kind of lost with them. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there are people for me. <laughs> I, well, I know I was people. just talking about that with my therapist yesterday about how she was saying, do you, what did she ask me? She basically something like, do you envision yourself um, like having friendships with people who aren't in recovery? And I said, well, I think if, in, in order for me to have a deep and meaningful relationship, I want them to be on some path of self-improvement and especially on some path of self-awareness. I think, I think I prefer people who have suffered before 
Yes, you know? exactly. Who knows something about joy too. That would yeah. be my favorite kind of person. And I'm less particular about how they did it. Yes. Okay. So then some of the other, um, the, th- the second behavior in that video is you were talking about being, um, other focused. So could you talk oh, about yeah. that? Well, you know, sometimes we call that codependence, but that's a tricky word. Everybody means something different by it, but other focused, just like, um, I don't know, what do you want to do? And, mm-hmm. um, let's see if he calls again. And <laughs> the other focus thing, like, it's just not attractive. And I think that I had a strategy for a long time. I would not consider myself strictly codependent. I have tendencies at times, you know, sometimes I'm the, I'm, my behavior is more on the, the yang of that, but, but the becoming other focused and having my happiness dictated by whether or not somebody is happier in my life or or any of that stuff is so disempowering. Mm -hmm. And the, the absolute best moments in my personal growth have been where, well, like when I discovered I had a higher power, I went from like thinking that was bullshit to having a profound experience. And that freed me up a lot from, from feeling like any one person or thing had to work out. I just started to have a, a mm. confidence. Like, I don't know, whatever happens though, I'll figure it out. Me and my higher power will figure it out. And I began to have a sense of sort of, this sounds a bit grand, but personal destiny, like, mm. well, I've been kept alive this long. So I know that I'm for something. And so whatever it appears is happening right now, it's going to somehow, you know, work out and I'll, it, it might even be used for the good. And that, and lately, lately I've had the pleasure of finding out that a lot of my hard experiences and shitty jobs or whatever I've had to do in my life, like it's all being used right now to be good at what mm-hmm. I do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all served a purpose. Yeah. And so other focused, it's a funny thing though, when you're, so, who was it? Somebody, um, maybe a YouTube, maybe Richard Grannon, a YouTuber. I may have that wrong. So if somebody hears this and can correct it in comments or something, you know, (laughs) but codependence is a, um, it's like a a pathological need to manipulate people's feelings about things. And I was like, yeah, you know, I like it's Christmas and I want it to feel Christmassy and I'm going to get all stressed out, you know, trying to make sure it feels like the Christmas that I wanted it to feel like for everybody. So so that's actually very self-centered. Like you think you're doing it for other people, but it's actually like a big self-centered drive. And that's very counterintuitive at first, but being other focused is really being self-centered of trying to like fix yourself, trying to fix yourself using other people and make them feel another way. And I was, you know, I had a, I, I had, I have an ex-friend. I have a friend who I loved very much, but who was really codependent, who once said to me as things were sort of falling apart in her goodwill towards our relationship, she said, I'm just really disappointed. You are not who I thought you were. And yeah, I know, I know. And it hurt really bad at the time, you know, and I thought, how did I fail? How did I fail? But there was uh, some wisdom ended up dropping into my mind about that. That was like, I'm sorry that your fantasy of me has been so disappointing as you saw who was actually standing in front of you. Bang. (laughs) Yeah. Mic drop. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I never said that. I try to, you know, nowadays when I exit friendships or anything, I try to be as graceful as possible. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Graceful (laughs) and kind. Like why even leave anybody with any criticism? Just if you, if all you need is to end it, just end it. But, um, so I was as nice as I could be, but that's something I ended up reflecting on a lot, that fantasy of who people should be. And isn't that what shitty relationships are all about where you end up rushing in with somebody, you know, getting all bonded with them and then frantically trying to retrofit them into this like fantasy version of them that you had at the beginning um, as if that would fix you. 
and Mm -hmm. nobody likes it. I don't like it when people do it to me and I'm miserable when I do it to other people. So it just seems to me that, that, you know, to really be awake means to kind of see things as they are and to have like an inner, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but when you have an inner source of like, I just know where my joy comes from. I know where my comfort comes from. I know people are going to come and go, but I know where to go for my, for my sustenance. Um, then you're a little freer to just like, let people be themselves. It's not so dire. Mm, they mm-hmm. conform to your expectation. <laughs> Perfect little plans and designs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the third, the third, um, behavior was, um, you say lack of clarity about yourself, but it's, I guess it's more so kind of seeing our part in things, taking responsibility. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that's pretty advanced stuff. It was for me. <laughs> I, I like to think that I'm all fixed now, but probably I, you know, like everybody, I'm going to keep learning about this, but just to kind of see, well, here was a turning point for me. So after my first marriage for about two years, I was really angry at my ex and mm-hmm. we were, we were fighting a lot. I had this wonderful day where I got over, I got over the anger. I just, but part of what helped me get there is I had a friend who said, I'm really sick of you complaining about him. You know, you married him. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and it got through to me I'm like, Oh, I married him. And I see this all the time. I think, I think there's a lot of emphasis in um, sort of like PTSD and trauma healing certain YouTube channels and things. There's a lot of emphasis on what's wrong with other people. And this idea like, well, they're narcissists and, mm. and, and the phrase I attract narcissists. Like I've always had the sense to go, well, that's not really the issue. It's that you bond, you sleep with them. And now they're your boyfriend. <laughs> that's more the problem, you know, than who they're attracted to. It's, it's your attraction to them. And um, so it's really, like really seeing our part. So I married a guy who was there in a very complicated situation. And it was, it was miserable in ways that were very predictable to everybody around me. And, and then I blamed him for it. And like who everybody does that, right? Everybody does that, but you can't really heal till you just realize like something in me chose that. And then I couldn't really face that. It's too terrible to face until there was this thing, a name for what I have, which is CPTSD. And I like, that is so normal for, for a woman who as a girl was abandoned and neglected. That's just really normal. I'm normal. And it plays out that way. So you can do workarounds. Isn't that cool? You know, and that's, I think I was always waiting, like if I would just have an, a realization about things and, and realizing the truth is part of it. But sometimes you have to just take action on a lot of workarounds, like no dating without consulting with my mentor about dating, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so wonderful. Um, what, so what are you, you working on anything right now? Anything you want to promote? I'm writing a book. Or? Amazing. I'm writing a book right now. Yeah. And what's it um, called? Crappy Childhood Fairy? Yeah, uh, the crappy up, childhood fairy, fairy manifesto. I, if the publisher mm. will agree to that, it's 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 the crappy childhood fairy manifesto. And I'm I'm you know describing my my experience dotted in to the approach that I'm teaching, which is a little bit radical in light of how most people do this. You know, with ideas like talking about it can keep you trapped. Um, mm-hmm. You got to give some time to not talking about it. And focusing on what happened to you can keep you trapped. And, and you know, you need tools to begin to focus on becoming aware, like, what am I doing? How did I, how did I get into this problem again? 
And then I teach really practical stuff. I teach the daily practice for re-regulation. And I've sort of evolved into this Dear Abby advice person. You know, people, I get like hundreds of letters every week from people and it's, it's my joy to, I, I get to cherry pick them on things where I think I have some helpful answers, but I run those a lot on my YouTube channel. Those my answers to these letters. I'm doing a letter today. I just recorded a, a, a letter today from a woman who she was trying to set boundaries and doesn't want to be used in casual sex, but her understanding of boundaries is very informed by her childhood. So she would say, I want this, but she doesn't act on it by getting out of the situation that is not yep. that. And I'm yep. like, Oh, I, I understand that I can help with that. So, so my, um, my book is a lot of, you know, I've ended up with a pretty coherent philosophy and it's going to be laid out in the book. And I'm really excited because then it's, it's putting out into the world. This is, this is my point of view. And then next year, I'm really hoping things will lighten up around COVID and I'll be out doing live events. I can't Amazing. wait. Well, yeah. I definitely want to have you back. This has been great. And I, I feel like we have, we have plenty to talk about. So this was just scratching the surface. So I, I like will be- instantly talk like old friends, don't we? Yes. <laughs> Which is what I like. You know, typically I, I, I typically like to talk to people before I interview. This is so just everyone knows this is our first time connecting. Cause I usually want to make sure that I have that authentic, you know, cause this podcast is all about, I want it to sound authentic and, yeah. you know, and some people are a little stiff. So I'm glad that this worked out. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'll be, I'll put all of your stuff in the show notes. So thanks so much. That wraps up today's episode. As always, you're welcome. Uh, Thanks again to Anna. That was really great. You guys need to go check out her YouTube channel. They're really good. And I think that she explains things in a way that's very palatable. So check out the show notes for links to her. Uh, You'll also find links to my social media. Um, I am at Adult Child Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, next week I have Paul Gilmartin. He is the host of the podcast Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, yeah, that's it. I just got some nachos delivered. So I'm going to go stuff my face with carbs and cheese and maybe a little sour cream. Um, and I'm going to see y'all next week. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am just oh so excited for y'all to hear it. It's gonna be a goodie, I promise.